Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Hello. Today I'd like to welcome Ann Parker to the podcast. She is a full-time Naropa faculty member teaching in the environmental studies, and it's a deep pleasure to have you on our podcast today. Thanks, David. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything you just want the listeners to know about you? Well, um, I teach in the undergraduate program in environmental studies, Mm -hmm. the master's in resilient leadership, and also I lead our program, uh, overseas program to Bhutan. Oh, yeah. And that's sparking my interest of what I'm going to speak about today. Awesome. Yeah. And what are we going to speak about today? So what I want to explore together is the idea of gross national happiness mm-hmm. and to talk a bit about the inner and outer practices. Okay. And I have a subtitle, which is capturing a bit of what I think our students experience when they go and they spend a full semester there. Yeah. And so what you're talking about is a program that the students at Naropa get to do where you take a couple of them to Bhutan, Tibet, and they study for a semester. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, so any student in Europa, and in fact, any American undergraduate can apply for our program to spend a whole semester, mm-hmm. a spring semester in Bhutan, studying both with me as a teacher and with the Royal University of Bhutan. Yeah. So it's a really unusual and exciting program to just really go and live there. Yeah. And, you know, be with the people as, as their lives are. Yeah, and uh, true or false, we're the only university that has ties with the Royal University of Bhutan? Uh, yes, we're the first university to work with them, with uh-huh. overseas students. Um, okay. And they chose us because they love our pedagogy at mm. Europa. They really like the sense of the East meets West that we have, and that's what their world is like as well. Yeah, and we had the Queen Mother. The came. Queen Mother came to our campus about uh, last semester, right? Uh, last fall, and she really fell yeah. in love with it. Actually, she really loved to see what what we were doing here. So yeah, it was such a treat. It's been a close cross-cultural discourse mm-hmm. at many levels. Great. So, gross national happiness. Yeah. Here we go. So I'd like to talk about that because it's an idea that's inspired people all around the world. And just hearing that phrase actually gives people a lot of hope and excitement and perhaps some, also some illusions. <laughs> so I'd like to explore that, mostly not as an expert. You know, I feel like the, the Bhutanese people themselves are the ones who are living and embodying these practices. Yeah. But as visitors, we get to spend some time there, and I watch the students, and of course I mostly watch myself mm-hmm. uh, interacting with the world <laughs> that they've created. So it's more like a rumination yeah. about what we're sort of know, knowing and feeling. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk about it at three different levels. Okay. First, I want to talk about the outer gross national happiness, what mm-hmm. the world knows about what's going on there and how it's inspired people. And the inner one is like, what's actually happening inside the country? Yeah. You know, it's such a great idea, but what does it mean to start to embody that yeah. in the way they live? And, and this is based off of a national gross? Gross national product. Yeah. So they're not basing it on product. They're actually basing it on like an energy we feel inside. Yeah. Like the happiness. Yeah. And that's what, what brings a smile to people's faces like it did to yours. Yeah. Know? I mean, if we were based in how we quantify happiness in a, in a national setting, I feel like that's pretty amazing and groundbreaking. 
Yeah, thank you for that perspective because that opens the door to the conversation. Yeah. And then after I talk about what they're doing in the country, I want to talk about the next level, mm-hmm. which it could be called secret or innate. Okay. You know, like what's happening at the underlying personal level. Yeah. Uh, and it's really mostly just an exploration. Mm-hmm. Great. So maybe I'll start a little bit with, I think when people hear that word gross national happiness, it creates sort of an idealization of what's going on in Bhutan. And you can have, if you idealize something too much, you have a crash, you know. Yeah. So I watch our students sometimes idealize things mm-hmm. and then take that crash and then come out with a really deep sense of excitement and amazement about what's going on in Bhutan. So we're going to kind of take it off its pedestal together okay. as Great. we speak. So a little bit of context for our listeners. Bhutan is a small country, perhaps the size of Switzerland, hmm. and it it's goes from about 600 feet in elevation to 23,000 feet in elevation quite quickly. So it's a very yeah. steep sort of place, yeah. you know, smashed between India and China. Mm-hmm. So it's a little country trying to do this very brave experiment, hmm. surrounded by all the challenges of the world. So it was really the fourth king, when he was pretty young, who came up with this term, and he, it just came up spontaneously. I think a reporter was kind of bugging him about the poverty of his country or the challenges, and he said, here's, his, here's what I believe is his exact quote, we don't believe in gross national product. Gross national happiness is more important. And so it was just an idea wow. that came up. And since then, to be honest, I think the word happiness has been a bit of a challenge because mm. it's confusing, especially in English. What does that word mean? Yeah. Like, what do we actually think? Yeah. You know, we could sort of stop and think about that. What do we mean? And what is our definition? Mm-hmm. You know, is it an emotion? Is it a static state that we want to have all of our lives? Yeah. Is it part of a good life? Is it part of many states of mind that make up a full life of mm-hmm. awakening and integration? Is it for oneself only? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and where does happiness come from? So in our Western discourse, you know, our, our language around happiness is quite messy. Mm-hmm. And it comes from a Greek concept that had to do with good life or flourishing more than just an emotion. So in a way, we use that word for so many things, it's hard to tell, and it can sometimes disappoint us. But the word that he was using really comes from the Buddhist view, which means inner wakefulness, yeah, inner fulfillment that's not associated with inexhaustible desire for outer things. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to be sure, I mean, eventually, as the term gross national happiness has evolved, they want to be very sure that it's about creating the conditions that support happiness. So it's yeah. not like everybody's going to have a TV or certain things. It's about how do we create this condition of living together and creating yeah. collective happiness. Yeah, yeah. So it's like the happiness of everyone coming together. It's not just an individual happiness that could intrude on someone else's happiness. Yeah. yeah and I think in that context, then gross national happiness starts to make more sense. And yeah. people are pretty familiar with what are called the four main pillars. Mm-hmm. Like the, the main aspirations for creating those conditions for happiness have to do with equitable and equal social economic development the preservation and promotion of cultural and spiritual heritage, the conservation of the natural environment, and good governance. And so those are the big, the big headlines, and we're pretty familiar with those, and they still sound very inviting, and they are. Yeah. Um, and it's inspired places like Thailand and Canada and places in England and the U.S. cities to develop their own measures of well-being. Yeah. They've used that term, sort of well-being is the term. Since then, there was a lot of pressure to quantify what happiness is because if it's a measure, you have to measure it. You know, if you're going to compete with gross national product, you have to show something, right? So that's been a challenge. Yeah. And they've developed these nationwide surveys. In 2010 was the first one. 2015 was the second one. And they're starting to actually get a good feedback loop on how do we seek these outer and inner qualities of happiness in a community. Mm-hmm. And they've done a lot of things. I mean, the things that are most striking on the outer level of accomplishment are that they've, they're committed to protecting 60% forest cover in the entire country. Yes. And they're, they're about 64% cover of the forest. Uh-huh. 
that's protecting biodiversity and all kinds of other life. Yeah, yeah. The country has set aside 42% of the country as national parks and wildlife corridors and oh, wow. preserved areas. So that's a huge, mm-hmm. you know, experiment and brave yeah, thing to do. Do they do they account for nature and animals into the gross national happiness? Or is it, it just kind of humans' governance? Ah, that's a good point. Well, I, I think that because of the traditional relationship to the natural world and this idea of protecting places, yeah, I think it's it's built in in a way that okay. is in there. And also, in the national parks, they don't remove the traditional indigenous peoples. They're caretakers of the environment. Awesome. So it's not like yeah. you throw out people and, and leave nature alone. It's like this, yeah. this delicate but generative relationship yeah. that goes on. It's a good question. <laughs> and also, they're right in the middle. You know, it's a developing country. They've yeah. got climate change and the melting glaciers that burst mm-hmm. and cause great floods. They've got economic issues that are quite significant. You know, the geopolitics of the surrounding situation is pretty intense. There's, yeah, lots of, yeah. there's also poverty in Bhutan and air pollution from India and China. So they're, you know, they're mm. in a place where they're really bravely stepping up to see what can be done. Yeah. So that's really what I would call a brief glimpse at the outer quality of what the aspiration is, mm-hmm. you know, to set up a country that's looking in this way. At the inner level... What I've sort of learned watching over the last couple of years while I've been working in Bhutan is that they got very public about gross national happiness because people were so excited. Mm-hmm. And they led a number of maybe about five uh, annual conferences or so. Mm. And then they realized they better just shut up and do it. It was like a lot of mm. outward talking. And they thought, this is too, yeah. too much outward. We need to just stop, go home, and do it. And that's what's been happening recently. Yeah. So I observe as a visitor who's you know, very affectionate toward their aspirations – but not as an expert, it's starting to appear everywhere. Like it's, it's now threaded throughout education from kindergarten through college. The learning is, is framed through those pillars. And it's also threaded throughout government everywhere. So every decision at a government level needs to go through the filter of gross national happiness from the highest level right down to the local villagers who step up when a project is coming to their small valley okay. to look at all these qualifiers, like how it affects you know, education, people's well-being, yeah. the health of the environment. Yeah. So they sit down and try their best to take all those factors in. With every decision, so it's it's now sort of threaded throughout, you know, yeah. government, education, business, everything. It seems like the gross national happiness is um, they look into what it could affect on a bigger level, with happiness being the the center and the root. But mm-hmm. gross product seems like is only based on a financial basis. Yeah, you know, and then everything else is second nature. Exactly. I mean, you know, some things of well-being show up in that, but yeah. not enough to protect the world that we're living in yeah. uh, as a whole. The way I thought about it as an American is it's sort of like embedding a value throughout the entire culture. Uh, like, for example, in democracy is one of our great values, so we teach kids you know, very early, and we, we embed the whole view of what a, mm-hmm. what a responsibility as a citizen is. So just the way that mm-hmm. we take a, a deep value and thread it throughout the culture, yeah. they're working on this gross national happiness. Now, of course, it was an older value. These, these deep Buddhist practices mm-hmm. are always there. And it's also a very communal culture, so they have some things that they're building on. But it's literally like a, a threading of, the, of this concept throughout, this new concept and new language yeah. throughout the entire culture yeah. at various levels. <laughs> so I think it's, it's been interesting watching it happen, you know. Yeah. It's uh, complex, and it, how do you change an entire cultural language and perspective? How, how new is this? Like, well, when did this get started? Um, you said it was the fourth king? Yeah, so the fourth king was pretty young, and he came up with that term spontaneously in 1979. Okay, so that's um, fairly new. You but could it's say. only, I think, in about 2008 that it, it, it entered ah. the constitution of Bhutan when Bhutan okay. became a democracy. Yeah. So the fourth king really set up the circumstances for Bhutan to become a, a democracy yeah. and a, just a constitutional monarchy. So he gave the power to the people, but he also, gross national happiness got built in at that time into the constitution and these Great. commitments to protect the forest and the wild lands. Yeah, so it's still a teenager or not. A teenager yet the idea of, in, and yes. the practice of 
beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And that's a nice way of seeing it because people go there and they, they have this huge idea about what it could be or what it is. And yeah. then they see you know, it's a messy human process, a mm-hmm. messy but heartfelt process. And it's very much underway. So it's a great observation that you just yeah. made. Yeah. I wanted to read just something. Let's see. I have a little something from the, uh, the words of the fourth king uh, talking about what is gross national happiness education. And I realized that he, in looking at his words, he combined it very closely with mindfulness practice. Hmm. He said that we, in, it, for our gross national happiness education, we need to teach our children to take care of their minds and to yeah. use their body, mind, and speech for the benefit of others, which will bring greater peace and harmony to themselves. Hmm. So I began to see that you know these inner pieces, the inner practices are very much part of it. There's the outer decisions on projects, but there's this inner work. And at that conference that he spoke, uh, the words that describe it are, it involves training one's mind to look in and become aware of one's thoughts and emotions and learning to be mindful of one's actions, getting used to one's mind and learning to use the power of goodness, compassion, integrity, and wisdom that lie beneath the apparent confusion of anxiety, struggles, and emotional upheavals of the mind, which meditation and contemplation brings it to bear, in the es- is the essence of mindfulness education. Yeah. So I could see that the words were, were very much joined together of gross national happiness education and mindfulness itself. Yeah. It sounds like a really good investment for a government to start this initiative because it sounds like the people are becoming healthier within their bodies, within their mind, with the relationships they have with nature, their communities, their even like external communities. Yeah. Just they're... I don't. It's it's hard to see how that could be bad in any sense. Yeah. Or, or yeah. It's, a, it's I think the the word that some people have used for it's a brave experiment. So I. Yeah. I, I like that. You know. And also, <laughs> as you drop down to this sort of inner love, like what's happening inside the country and in, mm-hmm. in their own beliefs, there are these nine um, domains of gross national happiness. So the ones are other ones are about ec- you know economics and cultural preservation and so forth. But you drop down to this other level of psychological well-being, which looks at positive and negative emotions and spirituality. There's health, which looks at mental health and disability and how many healthy days a year do people have. Mm-hmm. Time use, which has to do with sleep and work. I love that. <clears throat> that's one of the crazy things we have now in our world is just how speedy it is. Yeah. Uh, education, we've sort of spoken about. Cultural diversity, uh, letting people speak their native languages. There's 19 languages in the country. Uh, good governance, the structures that hold these the outer decisions. Mm-hmm. There's community vitality, which looks at how families are doing, how community relationships are. Mm-hmm. Of course, the ecological diversity and resilience is really critical, and we've sort of spoken about that. Yeah. And then just living standards. You know, there's still a country where people live very simply, and you, know, you need to sort of make access to, to drinking water and things. You know? Yeah. It's really interesting to see how psychological well-being is part of the initiative that the government is gifting their, their citizens, outwardly saying, like, we are, want, we are wanting to invest in your well-being. Yeah. Psychologically, health, with education, there's all these amazing initiatives that are encapsulated in the gross national happiness. Yeah, so it's sweet. It, it's not just looking outward, because outward things do cause the support for the person. Yeah. But to make that conscious, I think, is what's sort of exciting about the, the brave experiment. And then I have this third category, which I call secret, which is sort of a Tibetan Buddhist term. There's sort of outer knowledge, there's inner knowledge, but then the secret is, mm. is deep inside, and I, I call it innate. Maybe it's our innate wisdom. Yeah. And in a way, it's very simple. It's about touching the ordinary moment and the ordinary world as it is, mm. just as it is. But when you're there, you can sort of feel it like it's what I would call ancient magic because there's something that's so delicious and so warm about it, and it's really very simple. 
but it still has this quality of inviting the your deep sensibilities. So the first time I came back from our first semester in Bhutan, friends who saw me, you know, picked me up at the airport, saw me, they said, you look so happy. And I thought, I wonder why I look so happy, because, you know, I, it was exciting, it yeah. was good, but it was also challenging, yeah. it had a lot You're of hard work. You're just glowing. Yeah, and I thought, well, why would I look happy to them, you know? So it wasn't as if it was some kind of perfect world, it was just, you know, mushing along as humans do. Yeah. And I thought, what was it? So I actually came up with some interesting things that came to my attention. It had a lot to do with what I call simple sensory attention. Okay. And one of them is about time. A Bhutanese joke about BST, Bhutan stretchable time, uh-huh. that it's flexible, like many countries have in a certain way. Yeah. It's different from maybe linear Western time. Uh-huh. But it wasn't just that. It was something else. It was like if things didn't happen, there was sort of there was nobody worried. There was no, there was no sense of guilt or shame mm. about something not happening. Or if family needs came up that were more important, then it, people just change and do that like one faculty member's mother died and the whole university shut down and all everybody prepared the, the funeral ritual together wow. so there's sort of stopping for what's what's truly important in people's lives which i thought was really yeah impressive it just felt like a kind of inner kindness around time and i noticed how how unkind i've often am to myself in the west around time you know yeah yeah so it's something that i wanted to then take on as a personal practice you know? yeah like a life marker comes up and you address it as it is there and not not like oh how am i still going to do this and that yeah. you're not like trying to figure out two different things in your life which might not invest into the happiness it's kind of like making you stressed out yeah and it certainly gave me a chance to sort of look at my own you know kind of inner time and yeah. how i treated it and how do the community shows up for you too yeah that sounds really amazing and also just the presence of nature. I mean, I talked about the preserved land, and but to stand there at a valley with 7,000 feet of trees breathing with you above you and 7,000 feet of trees breathing below, yeah. it's so innately healing, you know, just, just being there. And, yeah. You know, the new neuroscience shows us how much we need nature for our health and happiness, yeah. you know. So I think it's well shown up there, and it just lets one arrive. And another one, which is interesting, is what I would call the collective field or the individual field. And there's a quality of feeling in the silence connected with people and it's hard to explain and I wasn't I was just feeling it when I got there for a period of time and it wasn't until I had the chance to meet with two uh, western women who I was so excited to meet with and chat with in English and discuss (laughs) things with and I realized that we had very pokey energy we we were trained Mm. to be so individual and so competitive even though we were the sweetest people we were banging up against each other's sort of energetic field and I thought my goodness we feel very separate it's almost we've created these individual capsules around us and we bump them but I wouldn't have oh. noticed it if I hadn't had, at least unwares to myself, not have that happen for a couple of months. Yeah. So there's just that quality of how we create our yeah. our collective and energetic field. That, that's pretty much what I can say about it. You just is, feel it. Is that something you both came up with collectively? Or did you think about that and it wasn't a conversation? Did you both kind of like, hey, I think we're being pokey. That's a good question. No, I actually probably should have explored that more. I just oh. kept, feeling, I kept feeling like I was bumping against them mm. and I couldn't get close. So I just continued with the Western way of trying to get closer to talking more and sharing ideas. And it was okay. It was not bad, but it, it still felt like a, something was happening, you know. So I probably should have named yeah, it. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's great that you noticed um, that. You know, there are lots of other things that are going on, but those are some of the ones that affected me the most. And another one is what people used to do in the past is just stop and take tea. At any time you bump into somebody, you're yeah. running about being a madly busy faculty member and you see somebody, it's, oh, we'll have a cup of tea, you know. So mm. just the practice of taking tea I thought was, was delicious. So there are a lot of other things. You know, there's a way in which service to the community is really important, and it shows up everywhere, and then one simply jumps up and goes and cleans the irrigation ditch that's been clogged for the neighbors' villages or, mm-hmm. you know, sort of a sense of service yeah. and immediate application of your community connection. Yeah. 
and being surrounded by the music and the arts. You know, everywhere Bhutan takes art and music really seriously. So mm -hmm. it's like daily vitamins of music and art. Yeah. So anyway, those are just a few things that I noticed that those had relaxed my body and made me notice how I was carrying myself and made, made me think about, mm. you know, how can I at least experiment or try to take these practices back into my busy world? So Yeah, and how have you taken them into, like when you come back to Naropa and you're teaching a class here in the States, how do you take that idea of gross national happiness, all the things that you've learned, how have you changed as a teacher and integrated it into your studies and your teachings? Well, you know, just in a simple way, I feel a lot closer to my students. Mm -hmm. The desire to spend more time just being really human together Yeah. and conversations in class and... Yeah, so maybe that. Being human together in class, <laughs> what? I mean, we always do it in Rocha, but you know. <laughs> awesome. Just another level of dropping in together and just yeah. enjoying each other's presence. And, yeah. And learning from what's arising, you know. Yeah. yeah. Do you guys have tea together? Uh, sometimes. Nice. <laughs> maybe I should bring tea to class. I haven't done that yet. Yeah. So I kind of just got this sense of that happiness is when we actually take the time to relax and be present. It's self-arising. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a happiness. not a happiness I have to earn or chug around and make happen. It's more like letting happiness happen uh, yeah. together and, and also individually. So that yeah. was sort of, you know, some of my so far uh, sensory experimentation with mm -hmm. just the, the, the collective world experience there that they've generated. Yeah, you can say uh, happiness naturally arises Yeah. if you're not in the way. Yes, and that's exactly you know, sort of one of my takeaways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also I feel like it's it's an important, the sense of practicing both the outer responsibilities of the world, the inner making things happen mm -hmm. as best you can serve your community, mm -hmm. and then the interior values where we try to get out of our own way so that that happiness mm -hmm. arises so we can share it. So that those are sort of aligned and embodied. You know, it's a moment-to-moment -moment sense of kindness to self and other. And one of the things I did, I do in Bhutan is I ask everybody I meet, what is gross national happiness to you? Mm -hmm. And every answer has been entirely different. Yeah. Um, and delicious and interesting. Yeah. And the one that, mm. I, that sticks in my mind the most is this young man from the western, sort of more remote part of Bhutan, who'd finished high school. Mm -hmm. And um, I was on a pilgrimage where I was walking around, and he saw me as an elder, and he rushed up to help me carry my, my bag. And, oh, nice. and I asked him, well, so what is gross national happiness to you? And uh, he said, it's the number of people that I make feel happy in a day. Wow. So I kind of liked that one. So I thought I might leave us on that note. Mm. That does taste good. <laughs> <laughs> I got a question for you. So we were talking about like gross national happiness. Does the government have any like tests or evaluations they do on their citizens that they can measure happiness? How, how does Bhutan measure the happiness? Well, there's a couple of different ways that's happening at the current time. One okay. is when the local decisions are being made in the villages, the village representatives, you know, all citizens of all kinds and all ages, mm -hmm. come together and they, they actually have a grid that they fill out about how much something will affect them. You know, if it's a, perhaps a new local industry is coming in that val valley, they'll, they'll actually have a grid that has all those qualities, those nine domains and all those sub-things about time mm -hmm. and, okay. and so forth, and they'll grade those. So they actually take the time to go through everything to decide how, what, what its impact will be overall and then literally quantify that. Yeah. And so that's a level which the local citizens very involved in yeah. uh, making those decisions. And that's, you know, quantification has been hard for them because it's a very sort of heartfelt culture and maybe quantification mm -hmm. wasn't sort of the, the usual style, but it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's very much um, given people uh, power and a voice. Yeah. And also uh, they do these larger national surveys, the one done in 2010 and 2015. Mm -hmm. So well-trained, uh, bright young people head out marching up and down the valleys and rivers and uh, interview mm. people. And these interviews take a long time. 
they can take um, like half a day or something. And I actually was uh, interviewed last year. They do interview mm. a, a few people who are local visiting re- or residents. And it was such a lovely, I mean, I can't explain all the questions that were asked, but it went on for a long time and it was so deep and it felt like this lovely conversation where somebody was actually interested in my experience from sort of beginning to end. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah. so I, I got a little taste of what these questionnaires are like. Just the conversations themselves are good. And I know they take the data. I mean, they do quantify. You yeah. know, it's on a scale, just like the local villagers yeah. ones. So <laughs> it's a kind of a weird mix of, you know, numbers and, and heart. Yeah, it's a little bit of magic, a little bit of spirit, and a little bit of science all wrapped up into one. Yeah. Just kind of seeing what is beneficial for all and the land. Yeah. Really and, you like know, that. in the face of all these challenges, which we've, we've spoken about, you know, so it's really very much, it's not like, oh, my gosh, they've got a perfect place in the world and we are all you know, yeah. struggling here. It's very much as it is, you know. Yeah, it's like um, small mind, big mind, but on a government level. Yeah. I Sweet. like that. Yeah. So the, the practice of gross national happiness and, and how do you do it? It seems you gave us that story of the student helping you or the, the yeah. young kid helping you saw an elder just wanted to like help you along your way and he gave you the definition of trying to make as many people happy in a day mm-hmm. what other kind of definitions have you heard that encapsulate the idea of what they're trying to do there people have given different things some of them talk about equity you know like everybody in our village in our valley would be able to live well and that we would feel equitable as we live together some yeah. a lot of the answers are along that line and many of them have to go into the inner practices you know, mm. the contemplative practices or the, you know, the way that I be with others in my community. Yeah. And the way that I sort of hold my heart and mind. So they, those are probably the two categories that people speak about okay. quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. And you said you're going back soon, right? That's right. Uh, we're, the students this year, we're meeting in uh, Thailand in, in late January, and then we head into Bhutan. With the inspiration of our fellow uh, Royal University of Bhutan faculty, we or lead the students around the country for about three weeks, so they really get to see a lot before they settle down, and then yeah. they become a bioregional in their valleys and okay. uh, study with the fellow students. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you speaking with us today, and we wish you a beautiful trip and to just soak in more knowledge about the, the gross national happiness and come report back to us later. Great. Thanks so much. Yeah. So I'd like to thank... Ann Parker, who has spoken on our podcast today, she is a full-time Naropa faculty member teaching in the Environmental Studies program. So thank you for speaking with us. Thank you so much. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.